Welcome to On DoD on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. Now, your host, Jared Serbu. And thanks for joining us this week. As we've discussed on the show in the past, the Army, indeed each of the military services, have a goal of producing one gigawatt of renewable energy generation capacity by the year 2025. That target has only been in place for the past five years, but the Army's nearly a third of the way there, with 300 megawatts worth of renewable energy projects already up and running, and about 200 more in the contracting pipeline. Of course, to produce that many megawatts of renewable energy requires projects that are, quote, utility scale. The Army's most recent project that came online this summer at Fort Hood, Texas, produces 65 megawatts all by itself with a combination of solar and wind power. The organization that's in charge of coordinating those huge projects, all of which are financed by third parties, is the Army Office of Energy Initiatives. And the executive director of OEI is our guest for the full hour this week. Michael McGee joins us to bring us up to speed on some of the current projects in the pipeline and where the Army's currently focused on the energy sustainability front. Michael, thanks for doing this. And um, to, to start us off and to give folks a sense of the Army's trajectory on all of this, you know, the, the Army's obviously been very active for a number of years in and partnering with the private sector to just build out generation capacity on a number of bases. But the, the, the sense I'm getting is that you're shifting the focus just a bit so that there's more of an emphasis on resilience, uh, more of an emphasis on assured supplies of energy kind of at all times. Tell me if I'm off, off base on that, but if not, um, talk a bit about what that trajectory looks like. No, you're, you're exactly right, Jared. The the issue that the Army is concerned about and is tracking is, uh, as current as today's news, there's an increased awareness of the of the potential fragility of the grid that delivers our power in some cases, and also the vulnerability of that grid sometimes to determined attackers who may be looking for potential ways to do harm to the United States via the power grid. That's a that's a distinct possibility, and we want to make sure that we're contributing to help the power providers that power our Army bases the ability to uh, maybe predict or, or, or at least better withstand any type of uh, intentional attack on the grid. So that's that's a true concern that uh, not just the Army but the other military services uh, would would tell you is is of interest to them. At the same time, there's also been an increased frequency and severity of extreme weather events that are impacting uh, infrastructure, uh, you name it. But to include the the power grid, so we're trying to make sure that we have. Uh, reliable and resilient uh, power delivery systems to our bases, and we're teaming with industry partners to include private investors who want to do projects that add additional generation on Army land that could be used to power the grid, but also uh, ideally, in some instances, if the grid fails or there's a grid emergency, those those generation sources could be used to power Army bases. So we're looking for a win-win propositions where somebody is looking to develop a project that improves the power grid, but also could at the same time provide additional energy security and resiliency to the Army. And we're doing that with uh, private sector investment, uh, and we've seen great interest in those projects. And so just in, as an example, I think in at least some of the projects the Army's done in the past, you've, you know, through enhanced use leases, et cetera, given over a, a large swath of land so that a private company could build solar panels, which are then connected to the primary electric grid. So it's not necessarily dedicated to Army use. So going forward, are we going to see more projects where the Army has, for lack of a better term, first dibs on the energy that are that is generated by these projects? Yeah, certainly, and that's that's something that's really exciting. So, so part of what's happening is uh, you have to have to have the right circumstances that allow for um, a certain type of configuration of an energy project that could be 
um, in, in, in some circumstances feeding the grid during normal operations and then could in an emergency be turned inward to feed the Army base in a contingency situation. So you have to have the right set of circumstances for that. But in particular with uh, renewable power, which is, when, which is where the, the, the main investor interest has been, uh, and so happens that the, the Army um, has been uh, encouraged by statute to uh, facilitate development of renewable energy projects um, that, that provide these kinds of benefits. Uh, those projects, uh, the investor interest has been in generation. Uh, with, with renewables, you need to also typically have the companion ability to store the power from the renewable generation source so you can use it at any time you want. For example, if, you're, if, you're, if you've got a solar power generation plant, you can use that power while the sun's shining, but if the sun's not shining, it's nighttime, you can't get that power and you can't use it. So you have to have the ability to store some of that power from the day, and then you could use it at night for your nighttime demands if you wanted to have a continuous supply of power that was reliable. So you need some sort of storage, and lately what's happening is battery storage is coming into its own financially, and we're seeing the economic viability of large-scale utility battery projects, especially in California, um, where they have a keen interest there because they're they're concerned about the reliability of their power due to due to their circumstances in California, and they're also incorporating an awful lot of renewables in that state. So it's 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 kind of taken strong root there, but it's also coming up in other locations. So we have a series of projects that have been, in some cases, renewables that renewable power that feeds the grid, but needs that additional storage component to make it um, what we would call an islandable configuration. In the event of a grid outage, or in the event that you want to run it at the nighttime, say off of that power, you need that storage component. So we're excited to see that that's coming along on some of our projects that have already been built with a generation piece. We have this maybe a solar generation project, but now people are looking to go back and um, invest in uh, energy storage, typically in the form of batteries, and add that as a secondary piece to projects. For new projects from this point going forward, we're trying to build that in up front because it takes a couple years to develop a project and, and the, the maturity of the economics of battery storage is right here, right now. It's happening. So we're, we're building that into our projects now as we go forward. At the same time, we're going back to our previous projects to add energy storage where it's economically viable and where we find that investor interest. So it's pretty exciting. And to We that have a couple of projects where, where we're not using... Um, the intermittent form of renewables, like out at Schofield Barracks in Hawaii, uh, it's a it's a biofuel plant. So uh, in Hawaii, they typically, uh, for the most part, burn fuel oil um, to uh, to power a power plant to make electricity for the island. And they wanted to construct a new plant that was uh, to handle peak loads at peak times, but also in a place that was removed from the coastline, which is where a lot of their plants were constructed back in the early days, above the tsunami strike zone. So the plant that's under construction in Hawaii for the Army is a, is on Schofield Barracks. It's a Hawaiian electric company owned power plant. They finance it, they own, they operate, they maintain it, but it'll be on Army land. It'll be used as a peaker plant during times of peak demand on Hawaii's um, uh, electrical grid on Oahu. But then uh, if there is a grid emergency, that plant can be islanded off of the grid, and the base can be islanded off of the grid, and we can power Schofield Barracks off of that plant. So it's one of those win-win propositions. In fact, there will be enough power from that plant that we could p provide power to Schofield Barracks, Wheeler Army Airfield, and Kenia Field Station all at the same time via this project that's under construction right now. That's not an intermittent form of power, so you don't need to store power to, say, go overnight, but you do need to store fuel. So there will be fuel on-site, biofuel, um, to power the plant. 
uh, for up to five days, and there was another provision for some additional fuel to be stored off the immediate site but on island for another period of time that gets you out to 30 days. So the, the contract that we have that allows the plant to be built on Army land requires provision of fuel for up to 30 days to have that islandable capability. So it's an extremely uh, attractive proposition to the Army, and it happens to be an a, a attractive proposition for Hawaiian Electric, too. So it's one of those one of those win-wins we're able to factor in um, this this form of storage right up front. And as th- that, that situation at Schofield, where the local utility is the sort of owner and operator of the renewable uh, infrastructure, I mean, is that a broader goal in all of your projects where the Army is really not interested in, in, in owning or operating, you know, whatever the utility scale project is, you just want the energy? Yes, it is for, for the projects in, in my office, the Office of Energy Initiatives. Uh, the, the Army's budget, which is, uh, you know, set up for certain needs the Army has, just cannot uh, take the additional burden of uh, funding large energy sources just so the Army can have them in the the, the likelihood of, a, of an outage that may be only a short period of duration. A better model is to find someone who needs that power generation asset most of the time so the economics make sense to them to build such a plant. And in the event that the grid is, is in, in emergency mode or has been disrupted, uh, and that plant can't push power to the grid anyway, if we can then configure the plant so it can be turned inward to feed the Army base it happens to be sitting on, we see that as just an ideal way to configure this so you get the most economic benefit out of the asset. Otherwise, the Army would be constructing assets that would sit idle much of the time if they're only used for backup power. There's an, there's an in-the-middle kind of proposition that says maybe the Army wants to make its own power as a regular course of business, and there are some places where that makes complete sense, remote locations where there is no utility that we can rely upon or there's not there's not a good reliability of power in the area, some, some distant environment um, where there's just, just not enough uh, local power source that's already provided and we have to provide our own. That's an example where that makes sense. Sometimes it makes sense to make your own power because you can make it cheaper than you can buy it from the people that deliver it to you. And, and sometimes that makes sense. But for the most case, um, for most cases, our army bases are located in areas where there's a there's a you know an affordable amount of uh, power available. It's just we're concerned about when the grid is disrupted. What do we do then? And to provide our own backup power generation can be expensive. Uh, so these projects make great sense when someone else is already willing to build the plant for their purposes anyway, that we can use it when they're not using the plant. So again, um, it's it's our projects are looking to apply that model everywhere it makes sense. Along the way, we sometimes are able to also improve some infrastructure that is attractive to us as well. We've, we've had some situations where there's a, an electrical feed that feeds only half of our base on one side, and then there's another electrical feed that feeds the other half of the base on the other side. And we would like to have those two halves to be able to be tied together. And if we can put a power project that's right in the middle that serves as, a, as an intertie between the two halves of the base, well, that's an additional piece of infrastructure that we find attractive and useful in the event we need to push power around from one half of the base to the other. So, so with a lot of uh, attention to detail and a lot of considering what the other party's interests are and what they need and want out of a project, we can come up with a better solution that's that's a winner all around rather than just a, a singularly functional project that only serves one need. Michael McGee is the executive director of the Army Office of Energy Initiatives. We'll come back and talk more about the utility-scale, renewable, and alternative energy projects the Army's working on after a quick break. This is On DoD on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm Jared Serbu.
back on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. Our guest this week is Michael McGee, the executive director of the Army's Office of Energy Initiatives. That's the office that has the primary responsibility for getting the Army to its goal of a full gigawatt of renewable energy on its bases by 2025. Before the break, we were discussing some of the creative solutions the Army's having to come up with so that those renewable projects can link up with the existing electric grids on bases. And to that last point, I mean, I think the electric infrastructure on a lot of bases is among a lot of other aspects of infrastructure that is getting a little long in the tooth. So I just wonder, as you've gone around and done these projects, how much have you found that you've had to actually upgrade or modify the existing power grid on base in order to support these new projects? Uh, It's a fair statement. In some cases, it's not so much that we have to modify our infrastructure to support the project for for our bases need, but there may be uh, the need to add additional infrastructure that allows the plant to fulfill its what, what I'll call its day job. If it's if it's providing power to the to the grid in in normal operations, there may be a substation that's needed or some type of interconnection, and and what may be already in place at the base is just insufficient to handle that additional capacity. So as part of the project, there's an upgrade to make sure the project can deliver on its I'll call it its day job, for what I'll now refer to as its night job. That is, mm-hmm. if there's a if there's an emergency power uh, situation. Yeah, there's there's some cases where we've had to add some additional infrastructure to make that possible. But um, as, as a result of the projects, I'd say the amount of infrastructure that we've had to provide there has has not been significant. But your your main point, I think, is is correct and is fair, which is that the infrastructure for electricity systems, but also for other utility systems on our bases, it's it's old, it's long in the tooth, as you said. It's in it's in need of maintenance. It's had to be deferred over time. It's in some cases in, in, in strong need of recapitalization, but, but we, we have often just not had the budget wherewithal to tend to those matters, and we've had to, to string along what we have and then maybe sometimes provide emergency fixes as they arise when, when we wish that we could uh, perhaps spend more attention and some more resources on recapitalizing that infrastructure. We just have not had the budget wherewithal. So these projects can assist with that, but you're right, that, that larger issue does remain, but it doesn't negate the value of these projects at all. Let me go back to your earlier point on uh, energy storage so that you can develop these islandable capabilities. I know you just sent out a request to information for industry on that um, maybe a month or two ago. Talk a bit about what sorts of questions you're looking to get answered on that topic. So the the, the energy space right now for the electrical power grid is incredibly interesting if if you're if you're assigned to work in these areas. It's it's evolving right now in ways that are just just really profound. Um, and a lot of it is dictated by customer interests. Uh, there's there's been a, a relatively flat demand for power. That is, it's not gone up and it's not gone down. It's been relatively flat. When I think everybody would expect it's probably going up, it hasn't been. It's been staying kind of flat. And part of that's because people are paying attention to it and they're being more efficient in their energy use. And there's a whole lot of implementation of high efficiency appliances and uh, lighting fixtures and so forth. So so that evolution causes the the power system to 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 look at its options for the future differently. That's one driver for change, but a second the, the consumer is looking for something different out of its power systems. They want to they want to be able to charge electric cars wherever they go. That infrastructure needs to be built out to satisfy that demand. They also, in some cases, want to incorporate their their own power generation. They're attracted to things like solar power on the rooftop. That has to be incorporated into the evolving utility grid. But also, there's there's a recapitalization of power plants that is occurring that is being strongly influenced by 
the availability and the lower cost of natural gas as a fuel source for these plants. And that's changing the way that utilities and power companies are designing it, the way that they will build out the grid of the future. They're going more to a smaller plant model that's more distributed rather than larger plants that are more centralized. And this is referred to as distributed generation. So so there's a there's a desire to place plants in, in different locations than they've been before to serve different demand needs in different areas rather than have power way down the road that pushes way back over here by, by large power lines. So that evolution presents a number of interesting possibilities as well as design challenges. And, and that's where energy storage is also dropping into the mix. We have seen some interest for the idea of uh, replacing what, again, are peaker plants that may only be used some hours a day that handle just peak demand and they're smaller plants. The affordability of energy storage, which can offer some power only in some cases for a few hours, that is, you would need a massive battery to store something like days' worth of power, but you could do a few hours. Uh, the energy storage could be an economically viable alternative to constructing a new power plant. And if you think of the the amount of operations and the people on site and the, and the size of the facility of a battery versus, say, a power plant, you can see the attractiveness to looking at a, a, an energy storage battery solution rather than constructing a new peak or power plant as, a, as an interesting proposition if the economics work out and if the reliability is there. And it's looking like there's a strong possibility for that argument. So, so these types of evolutionary changes are, are really um, remapping the electrical power grid of the future. At the same time, as I mentioned early on, concerns about the vulnerability and fragility of the grid are also influencing design decisions. It may make more sense to have a few, um, a number of smaller plants that are distributed rather than relying on a fewer number of plants that are centralized. It could present an additional risk to have only a few larger plants versus having a, a larger number of smaller plants. So all these factors are really shaping the energy landscape, but it's, there's also um, I can't I can't emphasize enough the the impact of the fact that um, the availability of natural gas in the United States due to advances in the fracking technology um, that have made plentiful and affordable gas uh, an attractive alternative to the existing paradigm that people are looking at engineering new plants to take advantage of that and and all of that's combining to to really make a big a big change in the way power is going to be delivered in the future. To the consumer, it, it may not look that different, but the people that provide this power and get it to you and try to make sure it's economical and reliable, um, it, it is a big change. I'm glad you mentioned natural gas because as we talk about this, we should we should remind people that you know having a completely energy independent or resilient or islandable base doesn't necessarily mean only relying on renewables. Um, I'm, I'm thinking back a couple years now, the first base that I ever heard of in the Army that had demonstrated its ability to completely go off the grid, I think was Fort Knox, maybe two years or so ago. And as I recall, they used natural gas as, as part of the solution there. That's right. Uh, Fort Knox, as I understand, uh, that's not a, that was not a project done by my office, but as I understand, Fort Knox uh, has a rather uh, abundant amount of natural gas beneath it, and it's also a very clean form of natural gas that doesn't require uh, much in the way of uh, processing or polishing in order to be utilized. So that was uh, an attractive proposition to the Army. But my office is looking at uh, a, a new project right now uh, at Fort Sill in Oklahoma, which would combine solar and natural gas 
power generation into one project. So the the utility there is in is in discussion with us about how to uh, take advantage of this the same value proposition. They need to expand some of their generation. They need to 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 meet um, uh, additional demand in this area, and they would like a small um, peaker plant to do this um, for, that uses natural gas. We were in discussion with them about uh, a solar project already, a solar power project, and they also raised the idea of a natural gas plant. And that was very attractive to the Army because that provides a, a, an additional diversity of supply and a highly reliable source of power in natural gas that's also uh, economical. And while we're, it doesn't change the way we buy power in this area, we would still buy at the prevailing energy rates that uh, we always had, um, encouraging the development and diversity of supply uh, around our Army bases, in this case actually on Army bases, is, is very attractive to us. So we're getting our first natural gas project, it looks like, uh, in Oklahoma, and we think we're going to be seeing more proposals to um, look at additional natural gas projects, maybe on Army bases. So we're excited about that possibility as well. And are, are there many examples out there to this point where you have demonstrated that Fort Knox-like capability to, to completely separate yourselves from the grid for some period of time? Uh, so, so we do have a, a few cases that are in remote locations. They're smaller, you know, which is it's it's kind of the the state of the art that you would need to be able to provide your own power. But in terms of sort of your standard army base, where you could where you could island the base, we have uh, one project that's already been constructed and is operational now. A second project that's under construction, and then uh, two more projects that would all completely create an islandable capability for the base. So at Fort Drum, New York, and upstate New York, there is a, a biomass plant that burns woody biomass material uh, as a way of making electricity. It provides 100% of Fort Drum's energy needs at present and also has excess power that it sells to the, the commercial grid off base. In the event that the commercial grid off base becomes a problem, uh, there's an emergency on the grid or it's disrupted, we can island Fort Drum from the grid and provide 100% of their power needs for a minimum of 30 days. There's a 30-day there's a stockpile of biomass that's available there on site, and our contract terms um, are set up such that the plant would remain operational in the event of a grid outage. So we have that one project in upstate New York, again, for the entire base at Fort Drum. The second project I mentioned at Schofield Barracks in Hawaii, again, you could island the entire base once this project is complete, and not only Schofield Barracks, but also Kunia Field Station and Wheeler Army Airfield. And then we have a third project in Los Alamitos in California that's still in the early stages. We expect to be going out on the street soon, but the idea is um, could we take advantage of perhaps solar power combined with battery storage, combined with diesel generators, which typically would also be needed to have a complete reliable power supply, and be able to island that base in the event of a grid disruption. In Los Alamitos uh, in California, they're particularly concerned about a natural disaster, for example, an earthquake. And if there was a large-scale earthquake in that area, they would need to have a response center. And part of the Army's mission set at Los Alamitos, it happens, is what's called Defense Support for Civil Authorities. That mission expects there to be uh, a rather sizable population of emergency responders who would be stationed out of Los Alamitos. So they're very interested in having that same islandable capability, not just for a few hours, not just for a day, but for perhaps many days. So that's a third project. And the fourth that I mentioned is uh, at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. Now that project will not be able to island the entire base load, but it will be island. It will be able to island the critical demand at the base, the critical operations and their electrical power needs. 
So, so we have a, a handful of projects now that we've been able to to come up with this this methodology that allows us to island at least the critical demand on the base, in some cases the, the entire demand on the base, because it made more sense to do that, frankly. Again, all with private investment by looking at what a private investor's interests are, what needs are that they have, what would cause them to want to invest in such a project in the first place, and then speak to those needs by providing them a location that makes sense at an attractive price. Um, but that is the Army land is available at a at a very, very low cost. In some cases, we've been able to, to provide the land in return for in-kind consideration and that in-kind consideration would be the ability to provide backup power in the event of an emergency. So, so this type of, of technique of looking at what the investors' needs are, what, what they want to do, why they're trying to, in, to find a way to invest their money the way that they are, uh, is key. If, if, if we're only looking at our own interests, then we, we probably don't have a deal in the offing. So we try to put ourselves in the developer's position first, find out what their interests are, and then we can couple those up with what the Army's interests are, and that way we can attract private capital into a project that serves both of our interests. That's Michael McGee, the Executive Director of the Army's Office of Energy Initiatives. More after another short break. This is On DoD on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm Jared Serbid. Thanks for listening to federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. This is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. Michael McGee is our guest this week. He's the executive director of the Army's Office of Energy Initiatives. As we talk about the Army's work to build utility-scale renewable energy projects on its bases without spending any of its own money, or at least very little of its own money. Your, your colleagues within the Army, uh, when they first set up what I think was your predecessor organization, the Energy Initiative Task Force, used to talk about this idea that, you know, the main innovations coming out of this space, or out of this office anyway, were, were not so much technological, but about coming up with new innovative ways to, to do business deals between the government and private industry to actually get these projects built. I wonder if that's still the way you guys think about this, or and, and if so, what some of the uh, innovations in that business space lately have been. Absolutely. I think that's that's still a fair statement today. We're, we're not really that interested in exploring or developing new technology via these projects. There, there are other program areas that are best and better suited for that. We're interested in implementing stuff that's available now. The, the issue has been, how do you pay for it? And that's that's been a real issue as long as I've been with the government. There's always more requirements than there are resources to meet those requirements. In this case, uh, we're talking at large-scale energy production. These can be projects that are in the multi-millions or tens of millions of dollars. Uh, for example, the projects that, that we have that are under construction or in operation right now, they amount to, by our estimation, over $600 million in private capital. Now, that's not necessarily money that the Army would have invested in these projects because they, they provide more than the Army would need, but, but that's the point. What makes the project economically viable is what the investor needs. And then if we can take advantage of that situation to our interests at the same time, then that makes complete economic sense. So first of all, appreciating that you're not just looking at your needs is, an, is a form of an innovation. And understanding how you can employ another person's capital to address what they might need and might want to also serve what you need, that's, that's an innovation. That's an innovative idea. So it's really been understanding their, their financial arrangements and how to structure a project that allows them to fulfill their financial requirements on a project. They have to have a certain deal term, for example, that allows them to uh, finance their projects in the most efficient way. They can't just uh, 
uh, look at a project that only has a five-year commitment from the government, for example, on an asset that has a 25 or 30 or maybe even a 40 or 50-year service life. Uh, the financing would not make sense if you financed it only over a period of five years. So understanding that is is new to um, most of the folks in the Army anyway and probably much of the federal government. So understanding and appreciating that is is a form of a of an innovation. In fact, as I as I talk to folks at Army bases about what we're doing with these projects and how we can put them to their to their interest to serve what they need at Army bases, one of the things I talk about is your typical federal employee mindset might be I have a requirement, I'm going to ask for money to meet that requirement, then I'm going to go contract to get someone to give me a proposal on that requirement, and I'm going to pay them to build that requirement. We, we don't do any of that. What we do is we create opportunities for people to invest in, and then we de-risk those opportunities, and then we solicit their interest to see if they want to take advantage of these opportunities. It almost turns it upside down on its head. And it's an entirely different way of thinking about the issue on how you might tackle what is in fact a very similar uh, way of looking at the problem. If you want to have some additional power or some backup power capability, your first thought is, I'm going to have to pay somebody for it. But when you realize that's probably not going to work because you may not be able to find the money to pay for it, we can show them a way to do this using other people's money because we speak to what those investors' interests are, what they're trying to get out of a project, and then we turn that to our advantage also. So it literally is win-win. Understanding that the vast majority of these projects are financed through through third-party financing, I'm sure the Army has a bit of money to spend in this area as well, this area being broadly energy. What, is, what does that budget kind of look like? What are the things that the Army does choose to use its own funds to invest in on the energy front? So the Army spends um, on the order of a billion dollars or more in facility energy costs every year. So it's a sizable investment that the Army has to make in order to have its power what we'd like to do is be able to invest our money wisely to reduce our power demand because power that is not needed is power that you don't have to worry about replacing should your power source go offline for some reason. So the Army does make substantial investments in energy efficiency through another program office that does that uh, to try to whittle down our, our, our energy demand overall, but also whittle down the cost of meeting that demand. Um, we've talked about some of the projects uh, in, in your recent history and, and the current emphasis on energy storage. What, what are the other big things that you're looking at in OEI right now in terms of possible innovations that are that are right around the corner, anything we haven't gotten to? So we're, we're definitely intrigued by the fact that we're being approached by companies interested in or utilities interested in and other diverse power supply sources that are capitalizing upon natural gas. That's that's a major feature that we see the benefit of that to the nation and to the Army. And we, we are, we're excited about the fact that people are looking to invest in that area. The energy storage, we think there's, there's other uh, stones to be turned over on that. Battery storage is probably the most promising, but also the way that people are looking at using batteries. Again, I mentioned earlier in one of the questions about replacing a, a peaker plant, not with another peaker plant or not with a peaker plant that uses maybe cheaper natural gas, but replacing it with a battery that uh, can provide fairly instantaneous response. That's That remains to be fulfilled, but that's an idea that's been floated that we think holds promise. So I think that in energy storage, we may have to stop using the word storage. We may have to talk about, there's another term, distributed energy resources, which sounds kind of bland, mm. but it speaks to the idea that there are other uses for these technologies that we've just really not thought through yet. There are ways to reduce the amount of power at different times of the day that allow other 
parts of the power system operate more efficiency. It's really like time shifting. And I think back to, to you know, although people don't even even see these anymore, and some people don't know what they are. V, uh, VCRs you used to be able to record some of your television program at one time and play it back at another time, and and they called that time shifting. Uh, you didn't have the kind of streaming that you have today. So so I think of the energy storage as providing that kind of flexibility. You can really move power around in, in time, in a sense. And, and you might be able to make power more cheaply at this time, but then use that power later just as cheaply. Um, and, and reduce the amount of power that's needed at peak times, reduce the cost of demand charges at peak times, but also even replace wholesale equipment uh, with a whole new form of a distributed energy resource that is coming in the form of a battery. I think that um, that the technologies for batteries is going to evolve too, but right now the, there's a big push behind lithium-ion batteries uh, for electric vehicles and other energy storage devices that uh, seems to be carrying a lot of the, the magnitude of the effort right now, but I think there's going to be additional technology advances as time goes on there. So I, I think um, even though it sounds like one big topic, I think there's multiple technology advances that will be contained in uh, the energy storage area to include new ways of thinking about how we use that storage to our advantage in the bulk energy system. Michael McGee is the executive director of the Army Office of Energy Initiatives. He's back with us for another few minutes after one last break on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. This is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbio. Back on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM, this is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. Just a few minutes left as we wrap up our discussion on renewable and alternative energy in the Army. Our guest is Michael McGee. He's the executive director of the Army Office of Energy Initiatives. I shouldn't let you go without asking you a question about what I think has been the Army's largest renewable energy program to date, which was which just launched at Fort Hood a month or so ago. You want to fill us in a little bit on that? Because I think there were some pretty significant innovations in that one. Sure, that's that's very exciting. That, so that project uh, is we, we call it a hybrid, and we call it that for for a reason. That's because we use we're using two different technologies, but we're using them at two different locations. And part of the part of the riddle was how can you provide an opportunity for a developer to invest in a in a property that's economically attractive um, when you only have so many resources to deal with? And what I mean by that is uh, there's clearly plenty of sun in Texas where Fort Hood is located but there was not enough land available to make a large enough project that would be economically viable for a developer to attract their interest. They have to make money off the project, or, or the Army has to be able to save money on the project in order to make it economically viable, and it just wouldn't pencil out at Fort Hood. And after doing some hard thinking about it, the team came up with a proposition that said, well, if you coupled this project with some of that very inexpensive wind power that's also at Texas, you could make this work. Well, the problem is wind turbines on Fort Hood presented a problem, as they do at many of our military bases. We have flight operations, helicopters, aircraft, and so on, where we're having a large wind turbine a couple hundred feet in the air is just not a workable proposition. So the innovation there that made this hybrid is, what if we took one project, but we combined wind off base and got the economic advantage of that, coupled with solar on the base, on the Army installation? and work that as one economic package, would it now be economically viable? And could we get these other benefits that we're interested in, which is having generation on-site near the base that allows for um, 
a better reliability of service by having the power generation close by that also could, at a future date, be coupled with storage to maybe have an islandable configuration. How could you do that? Well, you combine that with the affordability of wind off-site and you get what you want on-site. So we call that a hybrid project because it's solar and wind, but it's also on the base and off the base. But the real innovation there is the fact that it's a way to structure a project that gets over the economic hurdle. How can you make it economically viable? And the trick was combine the two. And you have the ability to take economic advantage of one and get the other benefits out of the other. So we're pretty excited about that project. That's that's uh, 50 megawatts of wind a couple of hundred miles um, north of Fort Hood, and then 15 megawatts of solar power that's directly on Fort Hood. And we cut the ribbon on that just recently, as you mentioned. Very exciting project. It also brings brings a, a, a price advantage to Fort Hood because we're actually going to buy the power off of that project and provide substantial savings over time by reducing the cost of power to Fort Hood. While we're on the topic of uh, describing and measuring watts, I, I think the goal uh, between now and 2025 is a total of one gigawatt. Um, I don't know if you have the numbers right in front of you or off the top of your head, but uh, can you give us some sense of progress toward that goal? Sure. We're, we're over 300 megawatts on the path toward that goal. At any given time, we have projects in, in, in play that may or may not pan out if we can't make the economics work. But, but what we've got in the bank is uh, over 300 megawatts of projects already toward that goal. And that, that goal is a summary of what is actually a, a collection of multiple goals. Probably the one that's, that's most uh, important is there's a statutory goal uh, in the one of the defense authorization bills for uh, the military services to achieve a certain amount of their power from renewable sources. And, and that's where that main goal comes from. And it pencils out for us to be about a gigawatt by 2025. So we're well uh, down the path toward that goal. But the, the great news is we've been able to increase the Army's resiliency of power and in some cases provide a complete backup power solution while also incorporating renewables and in some cases other forms of energy into these projects at the same time. So, so that's what we've tried to do is how can we solve multiple issues at the same time with uh, a set of projects and not, not getting single-tracked or single-minded over just meeting you know one particular goal over the other. So I think that's that's something that this office is immensely proud of is our ability to to speak to multiple issues at the same time by by doing a real hard think about how to design these projects in a way that are win-win-win for multiple parties. That's Michael McGee, the executive director of the Army Office of Energy Initiatives, the Army's central management office for large-scale renewable and alternative energy projects. Our guest for the full hour this week, if you missed any of our conversation, we will post this week's full program, as always, at federalnewsradio.com slash on DOD. That's it for this week's program. Thanks, as always, for listening. I'm Jared Serbu. So long. You've been listening to On DoD with Federal News Radio DoD reporter Jared Serbu. If you missed any part of this program, you can hear the entire show or any of our weekly programs anytime at federalnewsradio.com. On DoD, only on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. Hi, it's Kristen. Did you know that not doing things is easier than doing them? There's a lot of things to do, especially this time of year. But when you don't do things, there's more time to do things. Does that make sense? What I mean is when you use Shipt to get everything from gifts to groceries delivered same day, you have more time for the things you want to do. To not do things so that you can do other things, visit Shipt.com slash holiday. That's S-H-I-P-T dot com slash holiday.